0: No one takes credit for inventing the phrase the personal is political it has become ubiquitous and axiomatic
1: today we explore politics in the personal subjects of drugs bathrooms and birth
0: this is sarah from the left
1: and beth from the right
0: you're listening to pantsuit politics
1: no shouting no insults plenty of nuance Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off.
0: Before we get started on this episode, here's a message from our sponsor. Happy to be back. We've got lots of interesting feedback about our ACA discussion and which shapes today's episodes, um, where we're going to talk about some personal, semi-healthcare related issues, but just the idea that many issues that we feel are totally personal have a lot of political aspects to them. Before we get started, we really want to encourage everyone to leave us iTunes reviews. Um, if you have a chance, you guys are amazing at them and they're always so wonderful to read. So if you have a second, it's not going to lie, it's not the most intuitive process, but if you can <laughs> hop over to iTunes and leave our podcast review, we'd be greatly appreciated.
1: I'm so tired of talking about bathrooms, Sarah. I can't, I just feel like when are we going to stop talking about bathrooms? But here we are again. Uh, this week, in addition to the challenge that Loretta Lynch is mounting to North Carolina's law, the Obama administration issued some guidance to schools on their transgender restroom policies and drama ensued.
0: Of course. Um, I posted a really wonderful article on my Facebook page that I will share in the show notes called Seven Things I'm Learning About Transgender Persons from Baptist News Global, which I wasn't expecting, But uh, it was a really great opinion piece written by Mark Wingfield, and I think he did a really good job of tackling the bathroom issue and the transgender thing. And, you know, I told my husband, I'm understanding of the fact that it's at first I I was the way I felt was we're sort of what you brought up. We're tackling all this very quickly. And, um the, the idea of transgender and the idea that gender is a spectrum and not this binary situation. We're sort of foisting this on all on our culture very quickly. But then, you know, I was reading this article and thinking through some things. And the truth is in in the same way, we did not invent homosexuality in the eighties and nineties when it, you know, this movement really took hold. We are not inventing the idea that um, gender biologically and otherwise is a spectrum right now. This is a, you know, there are real, speaking of healthcare, there are real issues and real biological realities with regards to, um, ambiguous sexual anatomy and chromosomes and, you know, all these things they've been around since the beginning of the human experience. And just because right now we, the government, um, is sort of stepping in and making clear that you may not discriminate someone based on this, these biological realities. Like this isn't some sort of cultural movement being, being forced on people. I think it's a discussion coming around some real biological realities for people. Um, and also my husband is the attorney for a school board, and he says like the official thing from the Obama administration is sort of new, but these guidelines have been in place. And there was a couple um, lower court decisions that have been in place for a while giving – School boards, these kind of loose or not loose these guidelines regarding how to treat transgendered students. So, I mean, I think it it continued to sort of it heightened the passion of the conversation, but the reality of the situation is not that different, despite the Obama administration's very vocal. um, I don't want to use the word vocal and supportive guidelines, I guess is what I'll say.
1: Well, you know where I am on the substance of this. I mean, I can't think of a thing that's less my business than where someone decides to use the bathroom. And I think this is much ado about nothing. We just need to respect how people self-identify. Politically, I find it a little bit confusing because this is certainly the kind of thing that riles the conservative base. I think it's an awkward time for Hillary Clinton for the Obama administration to be um going to something that is so thought of as a state's rights kind of territory, like the idea of local schools getting guidance from the Department of Justice on their bathrooms like that's a big deal and mm-hmm. i even though I happen to agree with what that guidance is, I think that it's just it's weird to me that they're doing this right now it's weird to me that they're doing this the deportations that they are are coming up. I just, I'm kind of
0: like, what's what's going on in the West Wing right now? Yeah. I mean, th- I, I, you know, I mentioned this before. I think a lot of it is people felt, you know, many people, especially the sort of Democrat establishment, was on the wrong side of history for too long with marriage equality. And I think this is just, we're not going to do it this time. We're not going to be on the wrong time this time. Yeah, but
1: if so. I were Hillary Clinton, I might be like, hey, y'all, I got this, but don't make it harder for me to, you know, move in and take care of these things.
0: Yeah. But I mean, that's the, that's the exact calculation people get onto her about. So I think it's fine if, if they're doing this and, you know, I think it's the right thing to do. And if it's, if it makes it tougher for her, it does, but it's the right thing to do and it needs to happen. And we all need to become much more comfortable with the idea that, sexuality is a spectrum and gender is a spectrum. And what I was thinking about today, when I was thinking about the transgender guidelines and the, the bathroom hubbub was I think what's so what needs to be said when I have conversations with people and I'm not sure I'm always the best at saying it or making this point, but when we allow more room for different understandings of what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman, that is just as beneficial for people adopting a more traditional idea of what it means to be for a, ma- be a man and be a woman as it is for people pushing the boundaries of what that gender identity can mean. And And what I mean is, you know, as someone who is raising three boys, I think a lot about sort of the traditional ideas of masculinity, even as someone who, you know, fulfills a, a lot of traditional gender roles with regards to, you know, being the primary caregiver at home and all these things, you know, I want more room in my boy's life for if they decide to become sort of the traditional idea of quote unquote, what it means to be a man, even within that identity to allow a little more space and a little more understanding for people who, you know, maybe aren't traditionally minded, but also just, I don't know, just a little breathing room for everyone. Sort of what, um, All the single ladies, when we had her on to talk about the book, just let's just allow a little more space for how people become who they are and their understanding of what that means. And I think we'll all be happier. I really do.
1: Well, I don't know that we're going to get everyone to gender and sexuality or spectrums, but I, I think there's an interesting conversation to be had about sort of what the federal jurisdiction is over our school systems around topics like this, because this really pushes the question of are we talking civil rights or not, right? Mm -hmm. And you and I think that we are. There are certainly people who think that there is a countervailing privacy interest, and we've kind of talked to death the fact that we don't buy that, but it's an interesting conversation and an interesting time for it. Mm Mm-hmm. Hey, guess what? Congress did something on a bipartisan basis. You want to talk about that? I know. I heard. It's so exciting. So after three years of work, Congress passed the Comprehensive Comprehensive Addiction and Recovery Act. The Senate passed this 94 to 1. Who was the one? You know what? I didn't even look that up because I was just so happy to see the 94 to 1. They better have been
0: absent or something.
1: Yeah, I'm hoping. And then, well, no, I would think that the five unaccounted for votes would be absences. I don't know who the one is. The House passed it 400 to five. Um, I do know that included in that five is Thomas Massey of Kentucky, which I wasn't real pleased to see. Um, we'll post articles about this in the show notes, but this, this legislation is intended to combat the heroin and opioid addiction, real epidemic that's sweeping the country and, you know, it's a, the, the statistics on this are astonishing to me. The number of people dying every day, uh, the way this problem seems to know no geographic or socioeconomic or other limits. And so I'm happy that Congress has tried to do something. I'm happy that they didn't let perfect get in the way of progress. There's certainly criticism of this act. It doesn't go far enough. It doesn't provide enough funding, whatever. But we have some new grant programs that have been created, some new studies that have been authorized. Um, so i'm i'm encouraged that this happened
0: well and what i thought was interesting is that this came out um right around the time that uh, the la times just released an investigation into oxycotton and the pharmaceutical i i forgot which company it is actually that um that manufactures oxycotton i'll have to look that up and I'll, I'll leave the investigation in the show notes but basically oxycontin has always been pushed as 12 hour. sort of what made it what made it famous was 12 hour pain relief and they've known from the beginning that it doesn't give 12 hour pain relief and so they either were pushing the doctors to increase the dosage or to um and like telling their reps like tell them to increase the dosage or basically just you know just denying over and over again that it didn't actually provide 12-hour pain relief which if you're giving people stronger dosages or they're thinking it's supposed to last for 12 hours and it doesn't then they're and they're not dosing appropriately so they're crashing with an opiate is such a dangerous situation generally but also leads to bottoming out that can contribute to addiction in real real ways and so i mean it was really my eye opening to me because i thought you know so you, you hear the phrase like um genetic creates the gu- the guns of the gun of addiction and environment pulls the trigger and so i always thought like well maybe people who are getting oxycodone were already prone or they were having a tough time in life or no maybe it was just that the drug company knew the dosage could lead to addiction and there was really no other indication that this person was prone to addiction or would have problems and i just think about all the people who suffered under this drug people who have died addicted to this drug or you know that le- that led to heroin addiction all these things and i think it's just So, so despicable.
1: There is more legislation pending in the House, and I think some concern that we'll see a little chipping away at the good that's been done here and some bureaucracy added. So we'll see where this goes. Rand Paul also has legislation pending around a drug that is used to treat heroin addiction. And it's a drug that's being used right now, but there are some severe limitations on prescribing the drug. And I think his legislation is about chipping away at those limitations so that the drug can be used more prevalently. Um, living in an area that is really under siege from, from heroin, you know, I am supportive of any efforts to get more people in treatment in the most effective way as possible. We are mm-hmm. um, right along a major interstate um, here in Cincinnati, and it's It's just unbelievable to me the amount of drugs coming into the state of Kentucky from this area. And something has to be done, and, you know, I I don't know. I think it has to be hit at all levels because this is not a local problem. It is a local problem, but it's not just a local problem, right? So we have local governments working on this. Um, I hope that the Kentucky State Legislature will... We'll take a break from, you know, wanting to kill each other and do something about this that's productive on the state level. But I'm happy to see this is one instance where I'm happy to see the federal government taking some action because I think this is a federal problem.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: So the last thing I wanted to bring up is marijuana (laughs) (laughs) since we're on the drug kick. Um, The Ninth Circuit is considering a law that was also passed with bipartisan sponsorship uh, that prevents the Department of Justice from using their funding to prosecute people who are in compliance with state medical marijuana laws. If you'll recall, we're still in the bizarro world of the federal government saying that marijuana is illegal and certain states saying, not here. Um, And even though federal law is supposed to supersede state law, We have Congress acting, at least in the medical marijuana context, to say, well, you're not going to enforce the federal law against the states. So it's a really interesting scenario, should make for an interesting opinion, especially when you think about where the Ninth Circuit is located. But it made me realize, Sarah, that we've never really talked about marijuana on the show. I wondered what your thoughts were about legalization.
0: Uh, Funny story on that. uh, I side with quiz. The only question I did not align with Hillary was marijuana. She thinks it should just be legal for medical usage. And I think it should be legal across the board. That's interesting. Yeah, I have no problem with marijuana. Well, my feeling about marijuana is I'm, I'm not I don't understand why you could smoke and drink but not smoke marijuana. So whatever. Godspeed. I have no problem with the legalization of marijuana.
1: That's kind of where I am. I mean, does it make me excited to think about marijuana stores around every corner? It does not. But in the medical context, particularly, Mm -hmm. I think, why would we not use something that grows in the ground instead of something made in a laboratory? Yep. And then when I think about the line between medical and recreational and how artificial that will become and semi absurd. And to your point about cigarettes and alcohol, I mean, I just think Can we just move on? But I think we should really move on because this situation where it's legal at the state level, not at the federal level, you can have businesses in certain states, but they can't get a bank account, you know, because of the federal issues. That's dumb. And it's going to require a lot of resources and energy around something that's dumb. So, you know, have it be legal, tax it for days if you want to, whatever, but like, let's get past it.
0: Yeah. Give me that tax money. I want that tax money for show.
1: Okay, so we always compliment the other side before we leave this section of the podcast, and my compliment today goes to Joe Donnelly, senator from Indiana, who was instrumental in the passage of the Comprehensive Addiction and Recovery Act that we were just talking about. I was particularly impressed. I caught an interview with him today, and he talked about How lovely it was to work with Kelly Ayotte, a Republican from New Hampshire. Um, He talked about the importance of setting partisanship aside on issues that are this important to people. And side note, I think most issues are pretty important to people. So if we could do this more often, that would be cool. (laughs) But he also he talked with such passion about addiction, invited everyone listening to the interview to Uh, be forthcoming with their families and their neighbors about addiction. He he talked about the need to eliminate any stigma and just get people the help they need. He has resources on his website for people who don't know where to get help. I mean, he was obviously very passionate about this, and I was really impressed.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. So I thought I should compliment too. I'm going to compliment somebody from the other side of the Democratic Party because Bernie came to Paducah, y'all. So exciting. Um, I did not attend the rally, but he came to Paducah. I just wanted to say thanks for stopping by, Bernie. Welcome, first of all. But to compliment the person on the Republican side, I wanted to um, say what a beautiful article there was recently in the New York Times about representative, and I'm going to try to say her name correctly, Elena Rose Latinen, and she is a Republican out of Florida. She was also the first Latino, uh, Latino woman Latina woman represented or elected to congress which is sort of amazing not sort of amazing all amazing but she has a transgender son and she's been very outspoken about supporting her son rodrigo and appearing in ads um by an organization called save that advocates for gay and transgender rights and just really saying you know Protecting her son, sticking up for her son and saying, you know, I loved my son as a daughter and now I love him as a man. And this is something we should all strive to understand and accept. And I just thought it was really, really awesome and amazing and brave. And so good job, Representative Ross Lieutenant. I think I said that right.
1: (laughs) Well, continuing with our theme of the personal is political, uh, we're going to go real personal for the suit today and address a question that we got in response to our Affordable Care Act episode and something that we've heard from a number of people about since we have started the podcast, birth.
0: And $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. Because I think about Griffin going away to college. Y'all, he's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com help, dot com slash Pantsuit. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. You guys, I love my Aura frames. I have one in my office. I have one in my kitchen. I have given one as a housewarming gift. I have given one as Mother's Day, Father's Day. They are the most amazing gifts because this app is a game changer in my personal opinion
1: Well, Sarah, a couple of times we've made sort of side references to our feelings about how birth is conducted in the United States and how it's talked about and the impact of that on feminism and issues of equality generally. And then we got a really nice email from a listener after the Affordable Care Act episode saying, hey, could you say more about that? And that's not the first time we've heard that question. So we'll do that today.
0: It's basically my favorite thing to talk about I, I think mean birth if- birth is like more fa- Paul I really really love talking about politics, but if I could do a podcast that just talked about birth, I guess I could I, I mean I just know they' stopping me, but it really is like one of my most favorite things to talk about
1: I think before we start because we both are on um kind of the same track on this issue <laughs> we mm-hmm. should say I, I also think that we both are very much in the camp of women should do what women want to do and bodies are your bodies. And, you know, I don't want anyone to feel disrespected by the choices that we made and that we talk about. And also by the way we talk about the information that women are given in this process. So, um, nothing that we say is meant to insult anyone. It's just meant to bring to light some issues that I think we both feel really strongly about. And I also would say that if you aren't into birth and you maybe wouldn't listen to a podcast that was all about birth, hang with us because I think that these issues really do have an impact on the cost of health care and they really do have an impact on the way uh, men and women relate to each other generally.
0: Absolutely. So I'll go, I mean, I'll just go first and talk a little bit about my, my personal journey. I actually was telling somebody this the other day. I think it started in college. I had a Transy where we both attended... Um, school. We, I had a, we had a religious professor, religion professor. I do not remember the class. I do not remember how he made birth work in the in the um sort of context of this <laughs> religion class. But his wife was really into home birth and natural birth, and we read a lot of um. There's a really popular French doctor who sort of brought home birth. and we read a lot I think his name's Michelle Odent I think that's his name um and he I read a lot of his stuff and it got me thinking about um why we do the things we do in the United States in obstetrics and if it's really the best um sort of approach for women and children and so that was like that planted the seed and then the documentary Business of being born came out and really rocked my world. And I think when in college, I thought like, well, I'll just go to a birthing center like that sounded like this, the super safe, like the middle ground, like you don't really want to have a baby in a hospital. So let's go to a birthing center. But once I saw business being born, I'm like, oh, heck, who needs a birthing center? I'll just have a baby at home. And I also had in, in law school, I had a torts professor who was really into medical error. And listen, you spend a couple of, like months studying medical errors. Hospitals will not feel like safe places to you. So <laughs> I think that, that was the other sort of brick in the wall. And so I started, I got pregnant in D.C. and was, a t- was going to a home birth clinic with some midwives and then moved back to Kentucky, which is not a home birth friendly state. We're working on changing that law right now. But was lucky enough to find an amazing midwife who serves primarily the Amish and Mennonite communities around where I live. And um, I'll never forget, I was on the phone with her and I was like, well, are you going to do this? Do you make me do this? Do I have to do this? And she said, honey, you can do whatever you want, but I'm not going to make you do anything. And I thought, so that's about my my baby. So I had Griffin in uh, May of 2009. He was nine pounds and seven ounces. I gave birth to him at my mother's house um i had amos two years later at my mother's house with the same midwife and then my darling felix three and a half years later in a snowstorm so my midwife could not get out of her house and so i actually had felix at a hospital 16 minutes after i got there he was delivered by the head nurse and then i rolled out five hours later i was like peace out give me those against medical advice i'm leaving and i signed all the sheets and i left and, um, it was a, it was a fine positive experience. I didn't have it, except for the late, the nurse who kept trying to give me an a IV as my baby was crowning, which I was like, you have to stop that. I can't take it. But other than that, it was a, a positive experience and they were all nine pounds and it, you know, birth, having a home birth, a natural home birth was really one of the most positive experiences of my life. I tell people there's this, I, I so often talk to friends who had had birth and it felt like they... They talked like they'd survived a battle, like survived a war, like they were sort of traumatized. And I did not want to feel like that. I did not want to go into motherhood feeling like I'd been, you know, not empowered, but just overwhelmed and beaten down. And so I did not. I mean, I when I had Griffin, I felt totally empowered and totally. Um, and that's where I think you get into the sort of the feminist and political aspects. I, I wasn't treated like I was ill. I wasn't treated like I didn't know what I was doing. Um, that my body was sort of the enemy that needed to be tamed or I don't even know what. I just, I I gave birth to my son standing firmly on my own two feet. And that's not a metaphor I really was. And I just felt very empowered by the whole experience. And it was, I couldn't have asked for a better way to enter motherhood. And um, I'm a huge advocate I don't like I said I mean if if a hospital is a place that you feel safe I think as long as you are in a situation in which you know I had a friend who really wanted a natural birth and ended up with a c-section but she had an experience in which she felt like she advocated for herself she was listened to her wishes um, were met every step of the way and so she didn't she I mean I I expected to go she wanted a natural birth so badly I expected to go talk to her and and, uh, like to find her kind of deflated and sad and she and it was such an amazing thing to see her like it really opened my eyes to the situation like it's it's about being feeling like you can advocate for yourself feeling like you can you're being heard and um that's really what it's about and she felt that way even though the outcome was not what she wanted and she you know sort of um was really in a positive place as she started that parenting journey
1: well i had two hospital births um mostly because I wanted to respect my husband's very strong preference about having our children in hospitals. Um, And I have told him maybe 10% jokingly that I'll try not to always resent that because uh, (laughs) I definitely did not want to have our babies in hospitals. And it was a fight all the way to have the kind of experience I wanted to have. So um, with our first daughter, Jane, who is five and a half now, I was late, um, which I, you know, kind of resented the idea that they even knew I was late. You know, I thought you're just guessing, you don't know. <laughs> you know, And, um, week 42 rolled around and I could just tell by the way my OB was talking to me that in his mind, we were already in a C-section situation. Mm. And I thought as badly as I did not want to be induced, I felt that if I was not induced, he would just have this bias that took us down a path that I did not want to go down. And so I very reluctantly agreed at week 42 to have Pitocin. I negotiated that situation with my OB as though it were uh-huh. a legal contract. And, and I said to him, I will walk out still pregnant. Um, so just be aware that I'm not going to have a C-section just in the sense of like, get this baby out. If she's healthy and I'm healthy and it doesn't happen today, then it doesn't happen today. And bear in mind, like I was miserable. Like 42 (laughs) weeks pregnant is an unhappy place to be, but that's where I was. And so I went into the hospital. It took six hours of increasing my dosage every 15 minutes to start labor. And once it started, it was on and um i had my daughter very quickly after that i think it was maybe 3 or 4 hours but it passed in what felt like 10 minutes to me um i did not have an epidural it was very intense yeah um, there's
0: there's special special ribbons for people who get through pedosun without pe- epidurals cuz that's a that's not that's a whole another ball game
1: it was definitely a ball game and at one point there was one moment when I thought I don't know if I can do this, and I sort of in the corner of my mind heard a nurse saying that the contractions were too close together, and that they should probably turn the pitocin down. And I remember yelling, "Turn it off!" Like it's <laughs> happening. We're here, you know. And then after that, it was fine. And Jane was ten pounds, and uh, and it was it was fine. You know, I did not. I was a little bit mad um, (laughs) with both of my daughters, but I was happy to have felt everything that happened. I felt good after she was born. I felt like, I think people must feel after running a marathon, Yeah, you know, like tired, but accomplished and super proud of myself and, uh, lots of good chemicals, you know, surging through my body to get me through the beginning of motherhood. Somewhat similar situation with my second daughter. Um, And talking to my maternal grandmother, I realize now that I think I just have a longer gestation period. You know, that's a thing. And it's not accounted for in our cute little iPhone pregnancy apps. But I think Mm -hmm. that was going on with me. But anyway, I was late again. Um, I did go into labor naturally, but very, very slowly. And then we got into the situation of water broke and what, you know, it hasn't happened yet. And. My blood pressure started going up with all that conversation. And then I said, you know, my blood pressure is going up because I hate this hospital and I hate all of you people and I don't, (laughs) I just want you to leave me alone. (laughs) But nonetheless, (laughs) they started freaking out. And (laughs) so I'm having contractions and they're actually trying to draw
0: blood from me.
1: Yep. That's what they, yeah, I was, yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. worst experience of my
0: life. I, I mean, literally said, you have to stop. I can't do that right now. I, they finally stop.
1: did stop. I mean, I was so upset and frustrated. I walked into the bathroom. I said to my husband, like, let's just lock the door and have the baby in here. I can't, can't take it anymore <laughs> with with all of these people. But um, the doctor then came in and started talking about inducing because of concerns about my blood pressure. And Sarah I have never in my life. So lost my nuance. Let me just tell you, I was so mad. And I just decided like I'm pushing this baby out right now. And I did. And, um, the doctor was shocked (laughs) and, and I feel a little sad that she came into the world in a fit of rage, but that's what it (laughs) was. And so Ellen, who is now 10 months old and wonderful was nine pounds and 10 ounces and also born without any kind of drugs. And so, again, like, good experience in terms of, like, how my body worked for me and how I feel like my baby and I worked together. And another fight with the hospital. It's just, yeah. it's amazing to me how, um, how much wisdom you have as a woman in this situation and how flatly ignored that wisdom can be in conventional medical settings. And, look, I had in both cases, OBs who are known as like the natural birth OBs in Cincinnati. Like this community is a small one
0: and, um, and I had the best and it was still a battle. Yeah. I mean, what I tell people is that it's such a different experience to have a baby at home because, you know, my midwife for, (laughs) I mean, first of all, she's clearly passionate about natural birth or she, I mean, she's, basically committing a felony she's practicing medicine without a license because in kentucky they don't hand out um licenses to home birth midwives but again we're going to change that law and so we'll leave information about that in the show notes if you're in kentucky and you'd like to get um call your legislator and be supportive of this change which would be fantastic um but she you know she her kids are grown her husband's a truck driver she's I remember r- right before I had Griffin, they said you need to have a midwife who's about had to have delivered about 300 babies. Cause at that point you've seen everything. And Griffin was like her 300th baby. And at this point, I mean, when Felix, Amos was born only two years later and she was up to like 500, I don't even know how many babies she's delivered at this point. It's a lot. Um, and you know, she is comes when I go into labor, she stays until I have the baby. She stays for hours later. She comes back to my house to check on me she, she doesn't have an agenda at all. Like there's no hospital policy to worry about or nurses changing shifts or trying to get home or it's just, it's, she's on me and the baby's clock and it's a, just a very different experience. You know, even when I had Felix, they were trying to get me to wait for my doctor to show up and I laughed in their faces. Like, I don't know why they call it pushing. It's not pushing the baby's leaving. That's what's happening. The baby's going to leave now. Well, um, yeah, have I can stop that any... train if you wanted
1: me to. That's right. When you haven't had any pain medication. Um, I mean, I've never had it, so I don't know what the sensation's like in that respect, but it, there is, there are no choices, right? No. Like your body is just doing
0: its thing. It's going to do its thing. Get out of the way. You're there. Yeah. And so, you know, she's just a very, I always tell people like, in my midwife, said go jump off the roof i'd be like okay where's the ladder that's what i'll go do now like i just trust her so implicitly i know that she has nothing but me and the baby's health and safety in mind and and just sort of there's just no other and i don't think that means that you know obg wins some of my dearest friends are obg wins in this town and i just adore them i think they do a great job but they have other factors to consider they just do And that doesn't make them a bad person. It just means that they've got other um, things weighing on their decision making. And so when she comes and she's just by my side until it happens, it's just a very different experience. I didn't have to sort of, I was just Zen the whole time. I didn't really, the only time I remember thinking with Griffin, I remember thinking like looking out the window because it was like 10 in the morning when my labor started and I thought. If it gets dark, I'm going to feel discouraged. Like, that's the only thought I remember having. Like, if the sun sets and I'm still here trying to have this baby, it's going to feel frustrating. But it didn't. He was born at like 3.30 or something. But, you know, that's all. I could just really stay in the zone and not worry about time and not worry about people asking me questions or changing or trying to put an IV in my arm. And like, I just there was nothing else I had to think about except for just listening to what my body was telling me and doing that and moving in the where I wanted to go and, you know, it was an incredibly positive experience. And, um, I think where the political comes into play here is there is a lot of, um, treating birth as sort of an illness or pathology to be fixed and to be solved. And I do think there's feminist aspects of that. I think there is, um, aspects of, um, women's roles and women's bodies not being respected and being seen as something to sort of, you know, control and create a framework for and plug them through. That's that, the that article we wrote that we put in the ACA and we'll put it again, uh, a Gawande's, which links it all to the APGAR score, which is once they could have these numbers to really grade what was happening, that's when things really started to change and you really wanted the, um, the outcome was all that mattered. Like, I have a, I tell this story. I had a friend who had a, a really wanted natural birth and had a C section, and I just met her. I hadn't seen her in a, many years, and we were at a baby shower, and she said, I know all that matters is the healthy baby. And I said, you know, I don't think that it's not that I don't think that the baby matters. I'm like, of course it matters, but it's not the only thing that matters. You feel traumatized by your experience. You wanted one thing and you didn't feel listened to and you didn't feel like you got the experience you wanted. And that's important too. And she burst into tears at this baby shower and was like, Oh my God, thank you so much. Like she just didn't feel listened to. And she didn't feel like she came in and, was, you know, she had the experience she wanted. And there's just this very um way that a lot of people talk about birth and I think that they're just they're 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 not they're sold sort of a bill of goods of you know, just get in there, slap in the epidural, you know, all that matters is a healthy baby. I just think there's so much more going on with regards to the hormones and how it affects your emotions and how it affects your recovery and there's a whole not to mention the whole other aspect of this which is we put women through massive medical traumas and then hand them a newborn and are like see you later have fun good good luck with all that you know we know there's not a lot of post um birth support in this uh society either which is a huge problem as well
1: Yeah, I think that the emphasis on the healthy baby is fine as long as you acknowledge that part of what a healthy baby needs to remain healthy is Mm -hmm. a healthy, happy mother Mm -hmm. and a mother who is equipped as much as you can be for the really difficult emotional work of mothering a newborn. Mm -hmm. (coughs) Excuse me. Um, So to, to the point about the after... After I had both of my girls, you know, in the hospital, you just continuously getting this question about your pain. And I was prepared for that because I took an excellent birth course where they said, hey, the hospital is going to constantly ask you about your pain. And that's going to get into your head unless you tell them to stop asking. Mm. And so I did stop asking. I I did tell them to stop asking during labor. But then afterward, you know, can you rate your pain one to
0: ten? And I just, like, had four I don't know how you rate pain. I just don't know how you rate pain.
1: Well, it's so annoying. I mean, I, I finally said to one nurse, I am not in pain. I'm uncomfortable. I am super uncomfortable. Yeah. I'm not in pain. And they asked me if I wanted pain medicine, even though I wasn't complaining of pain. I took some Advil or something, you know. But then I left the hospital with my second child. So this was just 10 months ago. I'm not talking about like the distant past. I get home and I have this folder of stuff, right? And it's more just condescending, obnoxious crap about caring for the baby. And, you know, I hope that's helpful to someone, but it annoyed me. So (laughs) I'm going through it and I find in it a prescription and I'm like, that's weird. And I pull the prescription out. It has my name on it. So it wasn't somebody else's. It is a prescription for Vicodin, and it's Jeez. been prescribed for me by a doctor I never met while I was in the hospital. Wow. And I thought, you have to be kidding me. I mean, my husband and I joked about, like, why don't we just get it and sell it? And then we, you know, we'll have all the money that we need to raise this baby. You yeah, know, but, exactly. You know, we so we tore it up and put it in the trash. But I thought, like, how dangerous is this to send someone home who has no pain with this prescription? What if I were having some kind of postpartum depression situation? You know, what kind of outcomes could have happened through this unnecessary and in my view like really irresponsible prescription from someone who never evaluated me? Like what's going mm-hmm. on there?
0: Yeah, no, totally. And I, so when I...
1: you think about the cost of healthcare, right? One, we're we're getting treatment often that we don't need or want because of whatever protocol doctors are paying attention to. I do think we have to ask ourselves about uh, tort law here too, because as much as I believe in the right of someone who's been wronged to seek redress for that wrong, we're in a situation where concern about liability is jeopardizing outcomes, not improving them. And then we have an unnecessary prescription happening in who knows how many situations leading to potential addictions. I mean, what are we doing here?
0: Yeah. Well, and when I studied that in our, our, that tort law class where we really focused on medical malpractice and medical errors and what that means. I mean, it's such the, the truth is, you have these suits to, to as best you can help the person who has been harmed, but they don't really affect the medical community in any way re- like they don't change anything they don't reduce medical errors they don't change policy for the most part um so i think that's you know something to always remember as far as costs with particularly associated with birth i can tell you that um what my midwife charged me for griffin's birth was $1600 now i, th- I think that was only for half of it so i think with No, I think it was $1,600. And that was every visit, every prenatal visit, not including two weeks of postpartum care after he was born. She would come to the house and check on me. And, you know, she noticed with Amos when I was starting to have a little postpartum depression, she was way, way too ready to, you know, sort of interact with me in a way that I don't think most doctors would be just because when I would go see my midwife, it wasn't, I would go sit like I would, what I would see an um, OBGYN. I would go in to her little clinic and I would, or she would come to my house and we're talking like an hour, an hour and a half of me and her talking. How's your diet? How are you feeling? Where are you uncomfortable? What's this? What are you worried about? Like she, it was total care, real total care in a way that I don't think happens very often in the traditional hospital setting. And so with when Amos came along and I was you know, still trying to take my two-year-old to library story time and be super mom while I had this newborn, not a good plan. Don't do that. Y'all skip it. Doesn't work out well. Um, she was really great about sort of noticing like you're doing too much. You're pushing yourself too hard. You've got to chill out. And um, And really intervening, I think that in a way it could have gotten much, much worse. So then I had Felix and I I believe the bill for his birth at the hospital. And we got there at three in the morning. I had him 16 minutes later and we left, I think, at about maybe nine after the pediatrician saw him. We, we checked ourselves out at like nine. So about six hours. That was $6,000. That was the bill from the hospital. I never moved to another room. I didn't go to recovery. I did take a shower, which they were, you know, sort of dumbfounded because most people, she said, most people have an epidural and they can't walk. So we don't really know if the shower gun works. <laughs> Great. Well, I want to take a shower. So, um, you know, it was a huge expense where I think, for several hours in the hospital, whereas with my midwife, you had a total care package for a sixth of the cost. So, you know, I think that I really wish we would come around to, and that home birth's not for everybody, but for the people who want that model of care, who are low risk and um, are qualified to have it, it could, it could be such a savings, a cost savings in our healthcare um, industry.
1: Well, and the thing that I really want to emphasize in terms of the politics of all this is that I think this is a scenario in the most basic way where women are told that the most fundamental things about being women are not a match for the perspective of men. Mm. I mean, (laughs) and I don't mean to be ugly about that. This is a conversation I've had with my husband a number of times as much as I love him and know that his perspective on birth comes from a good place of wanting to take care of me, it it does really anger me that I respected his opinion about the hospital more than I respected my own perspective, which was sort of, I'm a mammal and I can do this. Mammals are made to do this. And I will say that, like, if you need sort of a mantra, if you're pregnant and you're trying to get through that, like, that helped me a lot just to kind of remember, like, we're built for this. We are made to do this. Every instinct that we have, wh- whatever path you choose, right? If you want to get an epidural, do it. That's fine with yep. me. But just remember, like, you're built for this. You can do it. You're made for it. There's nothing to fear here, right? And I think that our culture has told us be afraid of this. It's hard. You're too weak to get through it, so we'll help you. And it and it makes me upset and I think about how powerful I felt after the birth of both of my daughters and how much knowledge I gained just kind of in this really innate way. It's almost like instantly I knew things that I hadn't known before about myself yeah. and about life and about just the meaning of things generally. And I think about how many women have not had that experience because they were being unnecessarily tended to. Now, look, thank goodness for medical intervention where it's needed. You mm-hmm. know, hallelujah. That we have the tools that we need to help people when they need that help. But we're helping people when they don't need that help. And that is not help. And yeah. and I feel like Our culture would be completely different if we honored women's intuition and power around birth. I really do.
0: Well, and I have to say, you know, I've noticed this over and over again. This is mad props to our shout out to our executive producer, a.k.a. my husband, Nicholas Holland, because he really I think he had concerns, but I'm sort of a freight train when I get my mind set on something. And he was like, you know what? you want to do this? We'll do it. And my mom, actually, the funniest thing is my mom was like, I was born via C-section. And my mom was like, no, this is a terrible idea. You were born via C-section. Everyone will die if we do this. (laughs) And we watched the, and my grandmother was sort of the same way. And that we watched the business of being born with, I watched it with my grandmother and my mother. And it was a totally fascinating experience because, you know, with, they go through the history of obstetrics, particularly in America. And so my grandmother had, three children um, that were actually my mother and my uncle were breech. Her first child and her second child were breech. She had them uh, vaginally via, but she had twilight birth. So they knocked her out. She has no memory of it. And so to watch her um, perspective on the history where they talk about twilight birth and then they talk about C-sections, they talk about, um, you know, that a lot of C-sections happen like at three 30 at the end of the shift, which is when I was born and my mom, like watching sort of, My mom had been telling herself this narrative my whole life, which is I wouldn't put my head down. And it was sort of my fault. And that's why she couldn't give birth to me. And she's watching this movie. And like 30 minutes into the movie, she's like, "Okay, you can have the home birth here. I'm convinced. But then we kind of continue to watch it. And she's like, oh, my God, like I remember wanting to walk around and they wouldn't let me walk around. I remember just thinking, like, if you let me move. I feel like I could do this, but they wouldn't let her get out of bed. And she's like, "Oh my God, you were born at three thirty. That you were born at the end of the shift." Like just watching these sort of realizations wash over her. Because listen, the reality for me talking about birth is I've had two home births. I've given birth to three babies naturally. They were all over nine pounds. So I bring up a lot of stuff in people when I tell my story. And what I tell people, and what you know, kind of what I say is. The, the reality of the situation is in America and in certain states, the, the C-section rate is 40 percent upwards, sometimes lower, sometimes a, uh, even higher, and it should be around 16 percent. So people are getting C-sections they do not need. Nobody wants to think they're the person that got the C-section they did not need. Although I have I have a friend of mine who I tell her, I tell her we're the perfect tag team because she will say like I did not need my C-section. This is where I went wrong and like we're sort of a an interesting side-by-side comparison, but like you know, we kind of have to acknowledge that and we have to say Everyone should be empowered, and yes, no one sh- no one should feel guilty for what they chose or what happened to them. But if we're going to have an honest conversation about the state of obstetrics in America, we have to acknowledge that people are getting C-sections they do not need, statistically. Not because of our diverse population or any of that. Like Mathematically, it's not going to put a dent in the difference between where the C-section should be, according to the World Health Organization, and where it is. So... You know, we have to talk about this and there's so much emotion tied up in how you become a parent and how you give birth. And, you know, we have to sort of find a nuanced way to talk about this without judging each other. You know, I have dear friends who chose elective C-sections three times. They're not any worse mothers than I am in any stretch of the imagination. And I'm not a better mother because I had natural birth. We kind of have to set all that aside and just talk. Openly, but I think it's really that the politics of it is so difficult because, like you said, there's just so much tied up in how people talk about their own bodies. And you know, everybody think it's sort of like I feel like the way people talk about women in politics. <laughs> you know, everybody thinks their position on, like maybe whether they should run. Sort of, ha- I think about it the way I think about when I watched um, raising Miss President for the first time. I thought all these thoughts were just my internal. Totally unique, personal p- opinions of my life and my experiences, but y'all, we're all affected by this. No matter how much you feel like, well, this is just what I, what matters to me. What matters to you is affected by the by our culture, by what we're the lessons we're give, given about what a woman's body should look like, what a woman's body should do, what a woman's body should be used for or by. Like those affect all of us, and I think a birth is a really interesting political space to see that message and to see the cultural values we hold about motherhood and women and our bodies come to fruition. And we all want to think it's this complete, because it is, it's, it, it's, a, the paradox is true. It is both an incredibly personal journey full of personal decisions that affect the, 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 you know, the, the very soul and heart of a person becoming a parent for the first time, like all that, but it's also wrapped up in huge, cultural messages and societal values and political issues. They are both true. It is a space where both coexist and that's why it's so fraught, but it's also why it's so important.
1: And I think on both levels, it begins at birth because for me, the power of having given birth and fully experienced every experiencing every aspect of that and advocating for myself in the medical context really set the stage for me to make the decisions that I have made sense as a mother. And you know, we we've Talked before um, how I don't do mom guilt. I think that started from just this innate sense of like, I got this. I know what I'm doing. You know, I I don't need a bunch of guidance. What works for me isn't going to be for everybody, but it's going to work for me, and it's all going to be fine. And I just think that we really have to support women in connecting mm-hmm. with that sense of wisdom from the beginning instead of telling them that it doesn't exist.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: Since we're doing the mom thing, we're going to move on in the heels to talking about transportation of families. <laughs> Stay
0: with us. We're going full mom.
1: you're a minivan person and I understand that you feel strongly about this
0: I feel very strongly I don't really like to hold any opinions that I don't hold strongly no, I'm sure there's some things I feel neutral about just minivans is not one of them I really love my minivan and I recently got a new minivan um, we bought our old minivan, it was like a 2005 it had a million miles on it because we, we were adding a second car so we didn't want to like blow the bank but the transmission died and I got a brand new one And I love my minivan, and I feel that everyone with small children not driving a minivan is suffering unnecessarily. And I understand you're in that group of people, Beth.
1: I do not feel that I'm suffering, though, I have to say.
0: Sorry, I'm just telling you right now.
1: Well, I'm not anti minivan, I am neutral as to minivans. Uh, But for me, I chose a small SUV. I had a car, I drove an Altima when Jane was. A baby but when we were pregnant with our second child I got a small SUV I love my SUV very very much um, it is not particularly roomy but <laughs> it is so easy to get in and out of it's so easy to park um, I went a little bit overboard in buying a nicer car than I ever thought that I would buy let me just tell you how that was worth every single dollar I spent, <laughs> because I spend so much time in the car that having a car that I enjoy is a big deal for me and also kind of helps me get over some of my issues with cars that I just have in, because of life experiences. It's, it's a wonderful thing and it works with my kids and it works for groceries and all the things that I need to do. So I don't feel like I'm missing out on anything from the minivan with my smallest UV. I definitely feel that I suffered in my ultimate uh, now that I have like that frame of reference of like being up a little bit higher and dealing oh, with yeah. car seats and strollers and stuff. Okay. It was, we, you know, we were really pushing it with the car and the, so, and I mean- the children.
0: The key with the minivan, the reason the minivan is paradise if you have children. It really doesn't have to do with the the like my friend, I think she just got a Pilot or something and she and she has all these nice options. That's great. It's not about like the DVD and all the stuff they put in there. Although I really do wish I had one of the ones with the vacuum. That would be nice. But it's the sliding doors. It I don't know how my life would work if I I mean, I don't know how many times a day I let Amos in the car. But I don't ever have to walk over to that side. I open the door for him, him and Griffin get in, they strap themselves in, I close the door. Like I'm having I'm shuffling um Amos or I'm ho- I'm holding Felix. I'm trying to keep Amos from running in traffic. I don't have to open a door, then walk around, and open another door, I press the buttons, I put my kids in, I get in the car, I close the buttons. I mean it's just it's all about the automatic sliding doors. And my friend Elizabeth makes a good point, which is you also, as they get older, don't have to worry about them banging the doors into other people's cars, which I hadn't even thought about yet. It's just, it's the sliding door, people. That's the key to happiness.
1: Well, thanks for joining us for another episode. <laughs> <laughs> I know that this one was a little bit out there, but we appreciate you uh, coming on board with us. Next Tuesday, I think, Sarah, we're going to talk about how to talk to Donald Trump supporters. Is that our plan?
0: Um, either that or we might have um, some guests. The, the scheduling is still up in the air. And hopefully I'll have some good news to report about my election. Hello. Yes, we're all sending you good
1: vibes this Tuesday yeah. when Kentucky votes. Thank so. <laughs> you. Go Holland for Paducah. You can, as always, visit our website, PantsuitPoliticsShow.com. Get a t-shirt before they're gone, which is going to be really soon. Follow us on Twitter at PantsuitPolitic, on Facebook at PantsuitPolitics. Just reiterating our plea for iTunes reviews. We really appreciate those, and they really help us out, y'all. And until next time, keep it nuanced, y'all.